are in Psalms 91. So please turn with me to Psalms 91. Next week we'll be in Psalms 103. Doing a mini-series in the Psalms. Rich and I, Rich the Ellicott campus pastor, picking some of our favorite Psalms. So I hope that you've been enjoying our time in the Psalms uh, together. As we pray, let's welcome the Holy Spirit uh, to teach us this morning. We know the Holy Spirit lives in us, that he's our comforter, our helper, our teacher. And if you'd pray with me to welcome the Holy Spirit. So Father, we do ask that you would send the Holy Spirit. And we welcome the Holy Spirit fresh in our lives this morning. Holy Spirit, you are our comforter, you're our helper, you're our teacher. Would you help us to understand this section of scripture and really apply it to our lives? Father, we thank you that you are our hiding place, that you are our dwelling, you are our refuge. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. My heart for us in the Psalms is really twofold. The reason I wanted to spend some time in the Psalms, these two reasons, and the first is, is that we would grow in singing to the Lord. I want to remind us that these are songs. They're sung to the Lord, many by David, some by the sons of Asaph. Last week, we saw the song of Moses. And for some of you, it, it may be a little uncomfortable to sing to the Lord. It seems like our culture is not necessarily oriented much towards uh, singing, but it's important. God designed us to sing to him, to worship him. God is meeting his people through song. And a lot of times, God's going to meet us in song. He's going to meet us in worship as we sing to the Lord. When we look at heaven in the throne room of God, we find singing and worship around the throne room of God. So I want to encourage you to develop that in your heart and your life, to sing to the Lord, whether it's in our time together or while you're driving in the car. Shower is a great place to sing to the Lord. But what's a couple worship songs that are really your favorite? And it changes from time to time, but where songs, God's really meeting you. Maybe it's a song from the past. Maybe it's a, a song from the radio, from Christian radio. Maybe it's a song that we sing here. Maybe you're like, you know what? I don't really know any worship songs well enough to sing it on my own. Well, we live in an incredible age with something called YouTube, you know? Type in worship songs and, and start to listen to worship songs. Get it inside of your soul and begin to sing to the Lord. And then the second reason is in the Psalms, we see an honesty with God. Where the psalmists are coming before the Lord in their pain and they're expressing it to the Lord and finding God's comfort and finding God to be their refuge. And this is very personal between us and the Lord. We do all have pain different types of pain, but we all go through pain and being overwhelmed. We're going to do something with that pain and hopefully that we learn to give that over to the Lord, to come to the Lord and really find him to be our dwelling place, to find him to be our refuge. G. Campbell Morgan said this, a pastor from the past, this psalm is one of the greatest possessions of the saints. Psalms 91. I hope that you see Psalms 91 is your possession. These truths that are here for us in scripture, they belong to you. They belong to me. God has given them to us and it's one of our greatest possessions. So much comfort that's found in the words that we'll read together. Verse one, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. We don't know, you'll notice, we don't know who the author is of this particular psalm. There's no, no title. A lot of the psalms have a title. 
and tell us who is the author, we don't know who the author is on this psalm. A lot of the language seems to be David's language, but we don't know that for sure. But what we find here in verse 1 is he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The Most High gives us this understanding of God that he is above all things, as we sang this morning, that he reigns over all things. And to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Now, why would it be described as a secret place of the Most High? You would probably agree that the closest of friendships have an intimacy that's private. If you have a really good friend, there's some conversations that you're going to have with that friend, and you're going to share parts of yourself that you're not going to share with the, the general public. I hope you have some friends in your life that you share with in a way that's very different than social media. There's some things that we don't want to say on social media that, that go out to the, the world wide web. One of the beautiful things about the husband and wife relationship is there's definitely an intimacy there that's secret. There's some intimacy there that, that's private. It's not that it is to be in the sense like anything that you're hiding, not that type of secret, but it shows the closeness that's there. There's conversations that my wife and I have together where we share our hearts that, that we wouldn't have here on stage. Not, not because we're trying to hide anything, but that's the nature of a husband and wife relationships. There's things that we share with each other that we don't even share with our, our four kids as we're talking through things and, and praying through things. Even as well as I know my parents, and they've been married over 45 years, there's an aspect to their marriage and their relationship that I realize that I don't know. Why? Because of that secret place. And this is what God's describing. It's not that we're hiding our relationship with God, but there's a part of our relationship with God that's not seen by everybody else. There's a secret place where we're able to come and meet with him and draw near to him, where we come to him in prayer, where we come to him in worship. We come to him in petition and praise and we meet with him and we're dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. This may look a little different for each person, each believer. For me, it usually involves uh, some time of walking and praying with the Lord. For me, when I tend to sit and pray or even kneel and pray, I get extremely distracted. But when there's movement and I'm walking and being able to talk uh, with the Lord, it involves some time in the Word. Sometimes it involves wrestling, wrestling with my own fear and doubt and coming to a place of, of trusting with the Lord. But it's that aspect of our relationship with God that's not seen by others, but we're able to come and dwell in the secret place of the Most High. For some, you go, man, Pastor Eric, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, that place where it's me and Jesus and drawing near to him. And for others of you, you go, that sounds so strange. I have no idea what you're, what you're talking about. I would encourage you to explore. Encourage you to, to seek that out. Say, God, I want to know what it is to have it be you and me. I want to know what it is to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. A place to come and bring your heart, bring your joy and your celebration, but also your sorrows and your difficulties. This psalm goes on uh, to say, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. To be in someone's shadow, you've got to be close to them, right? Shadow also provides shade. In the heat, the Middle Eastern sun. So we're coming underneath the Almighty. 
to find refuge, to find shade. We come close to him and his presence, his character, his nature becomes our refuge. This description of God as being the almighty, you may want to write this down. It's used for the first time in Genesis 17. Abraham, who was called Abram, God meets with him at the age of 99. God had promised to him that him and Sarah would have a child. Year and year goes by where they don't have kids. He's not getting any younger. The Lord comes to him and says, Abram, you're going to have a son with Sarah. In fact, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Be kind of embarrassing to have the name exalted father and you didn't have a kid. But even more embarrassing for God to then change your name to Abraham, which is the father of many nations. So he had to go around and say, hey, I met with God. God changed my name. I'm going to be the father of many nations. Well, you're not getting any younger. You're 99 years old. And in this conversation that God's having with Abram, Abraham, he says, I am the almighty. This is not too difficult for me. I don't have any limits. I can bless you with a child in this old age. And that's our God. He is the almighty. He's not limited. When we're really going through trial and difficulty, it's easy to view God through our circumstances and to think that God's limited by our circumstances. But he's not limited. He's almighty. He's reigning over the trials of our lives. The response to this knowledge of God in verse 2, I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him I will trust. I will say of the Lord. He makes it personal. He says, look, I know that God's my refuge. I know that God is my fortress, and I'm choosing to put my trust in him. This seems to be a big part of experiencing God as our dwelling place is the trust. As we're wrestling, Lord, you're allowing this suffering. You're allowing this difficulty. I don't understand it, but I know your character. I know your nature. I know who you are. You gave your son for me to die upon the cross. So I'm choosing to trust in you. And as we let go and trust, many times we come in and experience God as our refuge and our fortress. But when we fail to trust, when we fail to turn it over to the Lord, many times we're not experiencing him as our refuge and experiencing him as our fortress. So in those two verses, we've seen four descriptions of God, four of God's names listed, that he's most high, that he's almighty, that he's the Lord, which is Yahweh, and he is my God. So really taking refuge in the character and the nature of God. And verse three goes on to describe the type of protection that God gives to us. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. God delivering you from someone who's trying to destroy you, the snare of the fowler. David definitely did experience this with Saul trying to kill him. A fowler is someone who hunts birds. We got any fowlers out there this morning that are like, yeah, I'm a bird hunter. No one's gonna admit it, right? Yeah, all right, there you go. So a fowler's hunting birds and David feels like he's being hunted like prey. And sometimes you may experience that in your life. Where we do experience this is from the enemy. The enemy hunts us, the Satan, he's a fowler. He's gonna come after us and he's gonna try to trap us. The snare of the fowler, the trap of the fowler. Satan will want to try to deceive and trap. But God's able to deliver us out of the trap, deliver us out of the snare of the fowler. 
Have you ever experienced spiritually, man, I was headed into some dangerous waters or I was right about to make a bad decision or believe something wrong about God, but God was faithful to deliver me from that. God's protection in our lives. God delivering us from perilous pestilence. That sounds pretty bad, right? Perilous, difficult, overwhelming pestilence of of different types, different trials of life, and God being able to deliver us out of those. God doesn't promise that we won't have pain in this life, but he walks with us and he sees us through that. Some trials in this life, they, they last for all of our lives, but a lot of them are seasonal. A lot of them we're gonna come out of. God's gonna be faithful to lead us through that time of difficulty. I love verse four. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. Luke 13, Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem and he says, I would gather you as a hen gathers his chicks, but you would not. Speaking to the nation of Israel, speaking specifically to Jerusalem, I wanted you to be as close as chicks are to a mother hen. I wanted to gather you to my heart, but you would not. And this is what we see in our relationship with God is us coming so close to the Lord that we are underneath his wings, that we are underneath his feathers and we are protected and close to to his heart. Now this picture, this illustration of who God is, you can almost see a chick and how weak a chick is and how vulnerable a chick is coming under the protection of of its mom. So we're weak and we're vulnerable and we come under God's protection and God covers us in his love. He covers us with his, his feathers close to his heart. And then the end of verse four talks about God, his truth being our shield and our buckler. Now buckler is a small shield. If you look up buckler, it's this round small shield that would be upon the forearm. So God's this small mobile shield, but he's also a large shield. And it's his truth that is our protection. Shields would be used to protect from the weapons that would be thrown at you. Whether it be a spear or a sword or an arrow, you would use your shield, you would use your your buckler. And it's God's truth that is our shield against the attacks that are thrown at us. We're told in the New Testament with the armor of God that God has given us the shield of faith to protect us from the fiery darts of the enemy. So as we go through difficulty and we walk through challenge in this life, church, it's the truth. It's the scriptures. It's holding on to the truth in those times when we're being attacked. We're not seeing clearly to say, this is who I know God to be. And his truth is my shield. His truth is is my buckler. In verse five, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor by the arrows that fly by day, nor by the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. The psalmist is saying there's things to be afraid of all day long. There's things at night, there's the arrows at night, but there's also the destruction at noonday. Sometimes we see violence take place at noon, at two in the afternoon. We know that the night can be dangerous, but it's like, how in the world did this take place at at noon. I was driving in an intersection this week 
in the springs. And this guy's just walking through the intersection, messing with people while they were driving and yelling and screaming at him. And he had that feeling that he was going to come over and try to get in your car, right? It's in the middle of the day and he's doing this. He's, I don't know what was going on in his life, but I was like, I don't appreciate that. And Amber was driving and I'm sitting in the passenger seat and I was like, just get in over on the turn lane. That's not the way we were going, but let's get away from this dude, right? And that's the reality of it. There's, there's danger that can happen at all different times of the day, no matter what you do to try to be able to prevent that. But this is what the psalmist says, don't be afraid of the terror. Don't be of the, afraid of the terror that can happen at night, but it can also happen at noonday. Would you describe your life as going through your life in fear and terror? It seems like as a culture and a society, we're pretty good at worrying. And we're worried about all of these different things that can and do take place, right? And our lives, before we know it, can be in a place of, of fear. And what the psalmist is saying here is by our relationship with God and our closeness with God, that he delivers us from fear. That his perfect love casts out all fear. Church, brother and sister in Christ, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to go through your days in a place of being afraid of what might happen or could happen, right? To say, I trust that to the Lord. I'm putting my life in his hands. I'm putting the life of others in his hands. Those that I love, I'm trusting them over to the Lord. It was interesting for me this week, I found myself wrestling with fear in a way that I don't normally do, probably for about two days. And what happened was there were some things this week that brought back some pain from my life in high school. Some traumatic events that happened in high school and then some circumstances this week. And nothing bad happened this week, but it reminded me of the possibility that those things could happen again to those that I love. And my response was, was one of fear. And I had to work through that and go to the Lord. And God was faithful to be able to meet me. But it reminded me that fear is a terrible way to live. I don't want to live my life in fear. I don't want to go through my days being in a place of fear of what might happen to Amber and the kids. And it's one thing to say that Amber belongs to the Lord. It's another thing to say that our four kids belong to the Lord. And it's another thing to live that, isn't it? To put them in God's hands and say, I'm not going to allow fear to be able to dominate my life. So our relationship with God, our, his presence, his promises, bring us out of a place where we're not living in the torment of fear. In verse six, or verse seven, excuse me, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. This is speaking of the amazing things that God can do in and through your life. That you plus God equals a majority. A lot of times we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances, overwhelmed by our obstacles, one of the things that I love about the Old Testament stories is God brought about these great victories for the children of Israel when they were grossly outnumbered. David experienced God bringing about these victories that only God could win. Goliath being one of those examples. One of my favorites of this kind of mentality that God can defeat a thousand, that God can defeat 10,000 is Jonathan. 
David's good friend, Saul's son. At this point in Israel's history, only Saul and Jonathan have swords. The Philistines had taken away all the rest of the swords. Saul is literally sitting on his sword. He's not fighting a battle. And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, you know, God can save by many or by few. He doesn't need a large army. You plus God equals a majority. So let's see if the Lord will defeat the Philistines. So they climb up this rock face. Jonathan says, if the Philistines call us up, we know that God's in this. And that's exactly what the Philistines do. Say, come on up, you sissies. We're going to teach you a lesson today. It's an Eric paraphrase, but there was some trash talking that was happening there. And that's the confirmation that Jonathan needed. So he goes up and just him and his armor bearer attack a whole garrison of Philistines. That makes no sense. Why? Because he knew that God was with him and that God was opening up this door and God ended up bringing about a great victory. Now we don't face a physical battle where we're going out physically with our sword, but we're in a spiritual battle and sometimes we feel overwhelmed in this spiritual battle. Hold your ground with the Lord. Know that the Lord's with you. The Bible tells us to submit to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God can bring about great victories even when the numbers are stacked against us. One of the things I love about the Lord is he doesn't live on paper. What do I mean by that? Is he's not one that's limited by man's understanding. I started senior pastoring here at Rocky Mountain Calvary when I was 27 years old. I didn't even know what I didn't know. Amber and I had been married for four years. We had one child, Hannah, who was 18 months old. We knew that God was calling us. But I can tell you by personal experience, God doesn't live on paper because that should have never worked, right? I look at, no offense, 27-year-olds now, and I go, wow, you've got a lot to learn. (laughs) I'm sure RMC at the time, as I began senior pastoring, was like, man, this is a step of faith for us as well. This kid's got a lot to learn. But God was in it, and he moved, and and he was faithful. So as you're looking at obstacles or opportunities, just remember, God doesn't live on paper. He's able to bring about tremendous victories for for his glory. In verse 8, only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the the wicked. You're going to see the wicked and see their reward. See what they reap from what they've sown. Here the psalmist is speaking to another individual who has trusted the Lord, says, because you've made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling place. Because you have trusted the Lord, you've made God your dwelling place. Just like I've made God my dwelling place, there's going to be protection in your life. Verse 11, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. This is a promise of God's protection, that God has given his angels charge over us to look after us. We feel this kind of charge as parents, especially with young kids, to look after them, make sure that they're protected, and the angels are given the charge of protecting us as God's children. I wonder if we get to heaven, if God will 
give us the movie reel of our lives and say, hey, these are all the times that an angel protected you and you had no idea. (laughs) We may be completely unaware, ignorant of the protection that God provides through, through angels. Uh, This promise is talking about, hey, you won't even dash your foot against a stone. You'll be able to tread upon the land and a cobra won't hurt you and a young lion and a serpent, they won't be able to hurt you and to harm you. So I think in this section of scripture, there's a tension here. Let me explain. Because on one side, we have the promise of God's protection. But as we read this, we can't help but think, does this mean that I'm never going to sprain my ankle as a believer? Does this never mean that I'm going to step off a curb and break my, my foot? So is it true that God protects? Yes, absolutely. In many ways, we may not fully understand how many times he has protected us and he will protect us. But is it also true that God allows us to suffer? Yes. Are believers going to suffer? Yes. Have believers suffered through the Bible and throughout history? Yes. So God does protect, but sometimes in his sovereignty, he allows us to suffer. So faith is to accept both. Some would read this section of scripture, and I believe twist it and use it out of context to mean that, well, no suffering's ever going to happen in, in my life. No plague is ever going to happen. No sickness And look at other believers and say, well, if you're sick, it must be because you don't have enough faith. Or, oh, you got in a car accident? That must mean that you don't have enough faith. I mean, does this mean that for 2020, no believers are going to get in a car accident in Colorado? No, there's going to be suffering in our lives, but yet God still does uh, protect. So for us, it's to not diminish either of these truths that we find in Scripture. To go, God, I do know you protect And I do know that you allow suffering, so I'm going to trust you in both. Joseph went through suffering in his life, didn't he? And what the brothers meant for evil, God turned for good. So even though the brothers committed evil against him, God was working in the midst of that. And if God allows us to go through evil, it doesn't thwart his plan. He's going to turn it for good. Job went through suffering and it wasn't a result of his sin. And at the end of the book of Job, what's God's explanation of the suffering? Hey, I'm God. I can do what I want. Like, where were you at creation? You have to trust me in the midst of this. The apostle Paul had thorn in the flesh that God allowed. And he asked the Lord that God would take it away from him. And God said, my strength is made perfect for you in weakness. So believe God protects, rejoice when he does protect, but also trust him in time of trial. Before we move on, there's one other thing about these verses that we just read. It might sound familiar to you because in Matthew chapter 4, Satan actually quotes what we just read out of Psalms 91. Jesus had just been baptized. It's this amazing moment where the spirit descends upon him like a dove. The father speaks audibly from heavens like this, my boy right here. I'm well pleased. This is my son. But as soon as his baptism was over, the spirit of God led him to the wilderness where he was alone for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting, praying, and Satan, who's an opportunist, comes and begins to tempt Jesus. One of the temptations was taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and saying, go ahead and jump because, and he quotes Psalms 91, The angels have their charge over you and you won't dash your foot against the stone. 
But Satan leaves out something when he quoted Psalms 91. And you can look it up for yourself in Matthew chapter 4. But what he leaves out in verse 11 is to keep you in all your ways. So the idea of God's protection is not that you go jump off a bridge and expect that God would protect you. But as you're doing life, as you're going to the grocery store and driving to work, that God's going to keep you in all of your ways. So Christ's then response to Satan was, do not tempt the Lord your God. Please know this and understand this, is Satan knows scripture. Satan knows scripture. It's one thing if someone's just completely dark and completely vile, and it's very clear what their message is, that's easy to spot. But Satan's a lot smarter than that. He comes as an angel of light, and he loves to use spiritual language. He loves to use scripture to twist it, to try to bring us to a place that's completely opposite of what the Bible actually says. So we need the help of the Holy Spirit to know the word of God and go, wait a second, is this a a twisting of scripture? I need to read this for myself. I need to try to understand it in context of that chapter. I need to try to understand it in context of that book. Does it fit in with the person of who Jesus Christ is? This doesn't seem right. I need to inspect this this more. So it's interesting to me that believers today still twist Psalms 91 to try to get us to believe that there's never going to be suffering in the life of, of a believer, and Satan twisted Psalms 91. We end with this incredible promise to those who love the Lord. It says, because he set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him, and I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Because he set his love upon me. I love the way that that's worded in our Bibles. Because we get to choose what we set our love on. Have we set our love upon the Lord, responding to his great love for us? As you love the Lord, then there's this promise of God's protection. He sets him on high, this place where enemies cannot reach him. There's the promise of God's presence, that he'll answer us when we call, that he will be with us in trouble. So not the absence of trouble, but his presence in trouble. That he will honor us, that he'll give us promotion when God lifts up an individual, there's prosperity that God will give a long life, that he'll satisfy him with with a long life. As we study the scriptures, I don't want the scriptures to be reduced to, well then, if you love the Lord, you're never gonna have suffering and everything is gonna be great in your life. The Amazon Prime gets word that you love Jesus and so they decide to send you your favorite type of cheesecake every night at nine o'clock it comes to your doorstep just because you you love the Lord, right? I don't want you to get the wrong idea or to stumble and think, well, because I love the Lord, I'm going to be a millionaire or because I love the Lord, there's never going to be suffering in my life. But I do want you to hear what Psalms 91 is saying and the heart of it is, is you're never going to regret loving the Lord. Loving the Lord glorifies God, but it's also the best thing for you. God is glorified and you are edified. (laughs) Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. Have you ever regretted loving the Lord? You ever look back and go, oh man, there was that season where I was really loving the Lord. That was a waste of my life. 
we look back on seasons of our lives and we go, hey, that was a time that I wasn't really loving the Lord. Or that was a time that I drifted from the Lord. That, that was a waste. But there's a substance that comes from loving the Lord. You're never going to regret it. Love him. Love him. Find him to be your refuge and love him because you were created to love the Lord. And as you love the Lord, God is faithful. God is faithful. And yes, there's trials, but the Lord is faithful. The abundant life is found in loving the Lord. So how do you do that? Each day, you choose to love him. Each day, you say, God, you've given me this day, and I love you. My life belongs to you. I want to close with a story from David's life that will help illustrate how we make God our dwelling place. Because I think for a lot of us, we read this and we go, this, this is nice, but I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to come into this secret place of the Most High. It was a very difficult time in David's life. He'd been anointed to be king, but Saul was trying to kill him, so he's on the run. He found refuge, oddly enough, with the Philistines and would go do attacks with the Philistines on the enemies of Israel. Him and his men had been out on an attack, comes back to camp, and he finds that all of their wives and children are gone. They don't know what has happened to them. Imagine if you come home from work and you can tell someone's ransacked your house and your wife and kids are gone. That's what Moses and, or excuse me, David and his men were experiencing. The men, his own men, were so overcome with grief that they wanted to kill David. This was all David's fault. Right there, in that moment, it says David encouraged himself in the Lord. His life has fallen apart. Something he didn't expect, and he encouraged himself in the Lord. He went and dwelt in the secret place of the Most High. I think we would have found David worshiping. I think we would have found David holding on to the promises of God. I think we would have found David in prayer. He's saying, I am pressing in to God being my refuge. Then the next thing that he does after he encourages himself in the Lord is he inquires of the Lord. He says, God, what do you want me to do? And God gives him a game plan moving forward. That's an example. So there's trial, there's difficulty in our lives. We say, okay, I'm gonna encourage myself in the Lord. I'm gonna come to him and find him to be my refuge. And this is a skill, this is a muscle that we develop in our lives of meeting with the Lord and meeting with the Lord and worshiping him and being in fellowship with him. So when there's crisis in our life, it's not strange for us to meet with the Lord. Does that make sense? This is what we always do. I meet with the Lord. If things are good, I meet with the Lord. If things are bad, I meet with the Lord. I, I fellowship with him. I'm continually coming in to the secret place of the most high. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you want to be near to us, that you want to gather us as a hen gathers her chicks, that you want us to be in your shadow, that you want us to dwell in this, this secret place of the most high. I pray for all of us that we could enjoy that fellowship with you, enjoy that nearness with you, whatever season of life that we're in. And we choose this morning to love you because you're good. You're a good father. You're an amazing shepherd, a wonderful savior. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. So we give you our hearts. We turn our eyes towards you. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.